Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. On this episode of Hong Kong on the Brink, we have a very special guest, Professor Ho Fong Hong, who is professor of political economy at the School of Advanced and International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Ho Fong, it is great to have you here today, especially since you have recently been in Hong Kong as recently as a couple of weeks ago in August. What was it like when you were there? First of all, it's my pleasure to be here. And when I was there, it's the first short trip. And uh, I went to one of the biggest protests in recent weeks uh, on Sunday. It was very peaceful and more peaceful than the media portrayed. And particularly maybe just about that week that it is the weekend that didn't involve tear gas. But before and after that, I uh, still see the events in which tear gas is involved. But uh, lives go on and uh, people go to restaurants and... People talk about it a lot uh, in their everyday life, but um, I don't see a huge disruption as represented in the media. This was the week of the 18th? Yeah, the week of the 18th, yep. And you don't see the disruption? We're seeing massive disruption the way it's being portrayed. It's not like that. Maybe I'm fortunate or unfortunate that I was in the time when when things calmed down a little bit. But the week after, I see the confrontation between police and protesters and tear gas is involved and so on and so forth. So it go back up. So this has its own cycle and rhythm. Does it feel different to you there? What I notice that I can visibly see what is very different is that we see graffiti uh, all over the places uh, and some slogans that uh, used to be seen as a taboo, uh, like Free Hong Kong, Hong Kong is not China, and the very common slogan now, it is like uh, Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Time. So I see the graffiti of these slogans in on streets, on wall, and everywhere. And particularly after the Chinese government has a press conference and also the Hong Kong government to denounce the slogan has some uh, separatist tendency, uh, people still use this slogan and I can see this paint sprayed uh, everywhere. So it is uh, quite shocking to me. Now you wrote that no matter how the anti-extradition protests end, that Hong Kong will be radically different. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Actually, it, uh, I think Hong Kong is already radically different from what it was before the protest because uh, before this round of protests, Hong Kong demonstration, Hong Kong opposition movement, Hong Kong protests have been for a very long time for very for it politeness. People are very reluctant to use confrontational tactics and uh, blocking roads, or occupying roads. And uh, people to have the assumption that the protester will just go away when tear gas is out. Uh, but this time around that we see that the protesters is fearless. Uh, they don't fear tear gas. They don't fear rubber bullets. And many of them talk to media 
uh, saying that even if real bullet is used, that they won't go away. So the, the determination of the protesters and also the militancy of some of the protesters is really, really very different from uh, in the past. Do you think Beijing will ever be able to repair relations with, with Hong Kong, or have we reached an, an irreparable separation? It is a very difficult question to answer because uh, it depends on what generation that you are talking about. That uh, as there's some credible opinion pool and survey out recently that is also done recently, showing that there's a huge generation gap and generation difference. For example, for people under the age of 30, according to one uh, survey, I see that uh, really none of the respondents identify themselves as Chinese and all of them identify themselves as Hong Kongese. Uh, and you can see that uh, in the demonstration recently, definitely there's uh, people of different ages, but the peaceful and big demonstration, usually you see demonstrators of different ages, but in some of the more confrontational and militant uh, action involving tear gas and, and confrontation with the police, and mostly overwhelmingly they are younger people, students. And in more recent weeks, you see this uh, uh, little repertoire of protest that is people forming human chain outside their schools, and you see that a lot of middle school students uh, lots of and hundreds of middle schools all across the territory that are involved in this kind of human chain that they form human chains surrounding the school in the neighborhood before school starts. Uh, so you see that the younger generation is really very determined to fight on, which is very different from the older generation who uh, we all assume that they just want to uh, make money and they want to uh, have their life uh, back to normal. But for the younger generation, we really see a very different spirit. You know, building on that, Ho Fung, last week we saw the announcement by Chief Executive Carrie Lam yeah. that after three months of protest yeah. uh, and pressure that she was mm -hmm. going to announce that she would plan to withdraw mm -hmm. the yeah. controversial extradition bill. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the five demands that yeah. had been put forward by the yeah. protesters. She also then announced that they would look into yeah. some sort of commission to investigate yeah. some of the core grievances yeah. that were animating the protests. Yeah. The, the question hanging over us now yeah. is, is that enough to satisfy the yeah. protest movement, or do you think that it's all five demands or nothing? Yeah, I don't think it is enough to calm down the situation. If she withdraw the bill totally in June uh, or even in July, that it might have that effect, but now it is too late. People just don't understand why she didn't uh, withdraw it when she decided to temporarily suspend it and wait for that long to, to withdraw. Now the concern of the people is not only about the bill, and the bill is a trigger of the protest, and then protests... Um, lead to this police crackdown that many, many people are unhappy about. They think that the police force in Hong Kong has um, mutated to a form that they don't no longer recognize and with the brutality, with, with the kind of unaccountability uh, and even some allegation, allegation about their collaboration with gangsters to attack the protesters. So these are all the issues that like making people continue to be angry and want the police and the government to be accountable for. So Carrie Lam talked about putting some new members into a police monitoring body, which is within the police department. So people think that it is not an independent investigation they have been asking for. They don't understand why an independent investigation is so difficult uh, for them to get because uh, in the past, in many kind of government scandals and mishandling of issues uh, from the British to the Hong Kong SAR times and setting up an independent investigation 
commission uh, with some credible people uh, is quite a standard practice. They don't understand why this time they're so reluctant to set up an independent investigation commission. So Carrie Lam is not promising that even. I'm sure that people will not be satisfied and will continue to protest. Let me ask you this. As you say, the young generation of protesters is fearless or becoming fearless. How can authorities in Hong Kong hope to quell that? I mean, do they really have a realistic chance of batting that down? It is the dilemma that uh, definitely in the beginning, uh, Beijing or Kerala government think that uh, they crack down hard enough and uh, don't yield an inch. And then over time, the protest will wear out by itself. It will die down. It lost. It will lose its uh, momentum. But it didn't happen that way. And the fighting spirit of the young people is still high. So the only way that authorities can deal with it to calm down the situation at least temporarily is to uh, yield to more demand uh, of the protester. For example, the police investigation thing is really uh, important. Maybe even if they set up an independent investigation commission for the police, the young people are still unhappy, but at least uh, more moderate and middle class and older demonstrators might be satisfied enough that already may see a kind of a declining number of people and then the atmosphere will change and then the momentum will lose a little bit. And again, that uh, I think it might be able to calm down the situation temporarily. But uh, given that the protesters is already asking for democracy, that is going back to 2014 umbrella, that they're asking for genuine direct election, uh, universal suffrage uh, of the chief executive and all members of the legislative council, so there will be no real solution or real coming down of the situation unless this kind of political reform question is opened up again and uh, people have a consensus about uh, how to move on in this uh, political reform to achieve universal suffrage that is promised in the basic law and promised in the Sino-British Joint Declaration. So do you see this as a question of China's resolve to deal with this? I think Beijing might not be ready to talk about the political reform again yet because it's a kind of warm that if they open up that they may fear there will be escalation of demand and protest but without talking about it at all and resorting to police uh, brutality police violence and hard crackdown things might calm down a little bit when people get tired and wear out worn out but it can come back up again anytime in the future, just like 2014, when they think the umbrella is done with, five years later, we have this. Uh, so it is not going to be the end of it until the whole the, the questions of uh, political reform and universal suffrage is uh, really resolved. Staying on that theme of how Beijing is, is looking at this, we have a, a government up there led by yeah. Xi Jinping, increasingly authoritarian. Mm. And also this touches on your own academic work of yeah. the Communist Party looks at protest movements with a historical lens. Yes. And there we've seen protest yeah. movements historically in China, which have played a very disruptive role to the ruling authority. Yeah. Talk me through a little bit more. What is the, what is the history of protest movements? Yeah teach us about how Beijing is likely viewing a resolution to this? Yeah. Does it see the only outcome as essentially strangling or crushing? Yeah. Uh, does it see possible concessions to the to the protest movement, not as a, a way to resolve, but actually as a way of further emboldening the protest movements? Yeah, actually, it's very interesting that in June, the people are asking why Carrie Lam or many people believe uh, Xi Jinping or Beijing government behind her 
are so adamant in not yielding to any demand of the protesters to let the protest grow that big. And, and originally, it is the situation that could have been solved relatively easily. Just withdraw the bill and set up some independent investigation commission about the police, uh, the handling of the situation. But they are very adamant not to yield an inch. I think Beijing government and uh, definitely the Hong Kong government make a big uh, misjudgment uh, on the situation. One has something to do with their historic assumption about people in Hong Kong and Chinese protesters in general. That historically, you can uh, trace it back to the Qing Dynasty or in more, more recent times, even in 1989. Protesters and intellectuals, dissident intellectuals, often has this uh, conception of being a loyalist opposition protester. So we are objecting to some policy and some action of the state, but we are ultimately loyal to the state. And so there's a lot of repertoire in involving leaning down with both Lee in front of authorities. And we still see some of it in, in protests in Hong Kong nowadays. So people are afraid of authority and they are seeing the authority as legitimate. They are just uh, limiting themselves to some specific demand. So they are a lot of revolutionary types. It is how the Beijing uh, see the Hong Kong protesters in the beginning. And Hong Kong protesters were like that before this, that uh, in like 2014 umbrella uh, movement, for example, some protesters uh, tried to storm the Legislative Council building, uh, a few of them, and then but more protesters actually immediately come along and then to stop them and saying that this is a kind of a thing that is too much. Uh, it will cause the movement popular sympathy, uh, sympathy, and also it will anger Beijing so much that it will invite a uh, harder crackdown. So there's all this psychological barrier. And Be Beijing think that they suppose Hong Kong protesters just still like that. So they will be self-limiting and you crack down hard that they will go away by itself. But definitely, as I said earlier, that the Hong Kong protesters, particularly the younger generation, they have changed. They become more fearless. They become more defiant, even in front of uh, the Chinese or even Chinese sovereignty, you see some action of defacing Hong Kong SA out uh, emblem, and also the Chinese national emblem was uh, also defaced in one of the protests. So it is a misjudgment uh, of the ethos or the, the spirit of the protester. The other thing is Xi Jinping didn't see the grievances among the young people in Hong Kong that has accumulated since 2014. After 2014, after the end of Umbrella, they disqualified it elected uh, legislative uh, councillors, most of them are very young and popular among the young voters, but they disqualify them after their election or before the election. Uh, many protest leaders, some of them very, very moderate protest leaders were put behind bar. Beijing's judgment would be a thing, is that uh, the Hong Kong civil society is done with, they lost the leader to jail or to exile, but they become very afraid. Uh, so it's why they decided in June to a lot to back down and let them to dissipate itself. But again, that it is a huge misjudgment. Over the weekend, the New York Times published a big piece asking whether the Chinese leader Xi Jinping is mishandling the mm -hmm. Hong Kong situation. Do you see signs of political miscalculation? Yes, definitely. The political miscalculation, that is the two layer of it. The first layer is the bigger context about uh, Xi Jinping's decision on not only on Hong Kong, but all other kind of issues like Taiwan and South China Sea and things. That uh, We already see that the Xi Jinping's style uh, of decision-making is that uh, hold on to the decision-making to himself and not to delegate to other members. And so it is not no longer kind of a collective leadership that different people responsible for different things. But Xi Jinping seems to be uh, governing in a style of uh, deciding many things by himself and 
uh, at the same time take a very hard line or the toughest line possible uh, in dealing with all kinds of issues and also underestimating the resistance that the government and he himself would face. And definitely in this particular case of Hong Kong, it uh, backfired very badly that uh, he miscalculated about the level of resistance that he's going to face and his inflexibility from the beginning make him and the whole regime very difficult to back down, particularly after they create all this public opinion or propaganda about this uh, foreign intervention. So it is a life and death issue for sovereignty and things like that. After you, you, you portray the movement in this light, so it is very it leaves very little room for the government to, to back down on this. So it is really a big miscalculation. Jude, I know you've been looking at what the U.S. response is to this. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, and, and actually, I'd love to hear Hofeng's opinions on this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, as we look to this upcoming 70th anniversary uh, in the PRC, mm-hmm. where many are talking about this as being a potential deadline for Beijing in dealing with the protests. And, yeah. and the question hanging over this still, yes. three months on, is will Beijing use force and a direct corollary yeah. to that, especially yeah. here in DC, is how's yeah. the US going to respond to this? Yes. Yes. And it's interesting we're seeing, especially now that Congress is coming uh, back online yeah. here this week, mm-hmm. we've seen increasing number of statements from both mm-hmm. sides of the aisle with Speaker Nancy Pelosi, we've seen uh, op-eds by Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. we've seen some of the Democratic presidential candidates now mm-hmm. making statements about this. And as we were discussing before we started taping, there's this yeah. bill, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which is now, Speaker Pelosi has said, they want to move this through pretty swiftly. Yeah. Do you see this as being the right response from the United States? Yeah. And what else is out there yeah. for the U.S. to do that can credibly deter yeah. the use of force Beijing? Or yeah. perhaps a more vexing problem is, if Beijing does end up using force, yeah. what tools do we realistically have? Yeah. First, the deadline question that I think Beijing will not have a hard deadline, but definitely it has a soft deadline. That one scenario Beijing doesn't want to see is that if October 1st, the 70th anniversary of the PRC, if the international media coverage is not about the parade, about the celebration, but about tear gas and, and firebomb on the streets of Hong Kong, I'm sure that if uh, protest is still continuing at that time, that people will plan the big rally or big actions uh, and there's holidays in Hong Kong, and then people know that it is an embarrassment to the Chinese government, and the Chinese government will care about it. So I'm sure that it will be look very bad from a Beijing perspective if the international media coverage on that 70th anniversary is like that. So there's a huge incentive for Beijing to calm down the situation by that time. But Beijing option is very limited. A hard crackdown they already tried with the Hong Kong police. And the question that people keep asking since the summer is that whether they are going to use the PLA. My guess is that they will be very, very reluctant to use the PLA. If they use the PLA to have a direct uh, intervention, uh, handling of the Hong Kong situation, it will be a very unwise uh, move because um, China is not yet ready to jettison Hong Kong as an offshore international financial center for the Chinese economy. So many Chinese uh, wealthy elites have their wealth in Hong Kong and many Chinese companies, uh, Chinese governments are relying on the Hong Kong market for for issuing bonds, uh, for raising capital, and so on and so forth. So there's real financial constraints. There's financial constraints. And this um, financial use of Hong Kong stem from the international recognition of Hong Kong as a separate custom territory. For example, U.S. under the 
U.S. Hong Kong Policy Act and treat uh, immigrants, uh, capital, and export from Hong Kong differently from all of those from mainland China. Uh, and also, uh, there's export control that uh, some military civilian do use technology, equipment that are banned from uh, exporting to China can be exporting to Hong Kong. So it is why a lot of high-tech companies having an outpost in Hong Kong and have collaboration with Hong Kong universities to have lab to import this kind of equipment for them to experiment on and to develop their products. So it is very important that Hong Kong maintain this internationally, legally recognized status. Hong Kong has a separate WTO membership apart from mainland China. So if PLA really directly crack down on Hong Kong, it will breach a lot of people's uh, red lines and it, it's going to open a can of worm that uh, the international community, first of all, the U.S. will really seriously consider canceling the recognition of Hong Kong autonomous status. And it will be a loss of very important offshore financial center for China. And people say that, oh, Shenzhen can replace Hong Kong, Shanghai can replace Hong Kong. But why people are putting, why mainland Chinese elite and the international capital are putting money in Hong Kong is because of its judicial independence, its separation from mainland China. If Hong Kong was destroyed as a financial center, uh, you ask any mainland Chinese elite having property in Hong Kong whether they will move the money back to mainland China. I bet they most of them will say low, and then they will move the money further away from China, like Singapore and other places. So it will be a big loss to China. Uh, so it is the domino effect that uh, sending in PLA will have um, if China really want to intervene. And this leads directly to what the uh, U.S. response could be because uh, Hong Kong is definitely the Chinese city under Chinese sovereignty. But at the same time, it is an international financial center that the stakeholder is far more than just Chinese companies and Chinese players. And and U.S. companies and European companies and Japanese companies and all over the world, they are doing business in Hong Kong with uh, their Chinese clients, their Chinese uh, customers. So it is an international financial center, not only a Chinese financial center. So And U.S. Uh, certification of Hong Kong status as a, a separate custom territory is very important. Right now, the U.S. Hong Kong Policy Act that is passed in 1992 has only like uh, one or zero option that whether you continue to recognize this territory or uh, this uh, the independence or autonomy or not. So in the State Department report every year, it said uh, whether Hong Kong is sufficiently uh, autonomous, insufficient enough for U.S. to continue. And the conclusion is always uh, it is sufficient uh, because the, the repercussion of saying no is very big and it needs a huge reconsideration. But uh, right now, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act is uh, more detailed uh, in terms of uh, how U.S. can respond to future development of Hong Kong. It's not only have the option of one or zero or whether to withdraw the certification or the, the recognition of Hong Kong's autonomy. Before withdrawing U.S. recognition of Hong Kong autonomy, there's a lot of options that the bill, uh, if passed, can provide to the U.S. government that is using sanctions. Again, particular uh, targeted officials in Hong Kong, maybe a police chief, maybe maybe some uh, government official that is responsible for any human rights abuse and crackdown on freedom of Hong Kong. Uh, so it uh, is a kind of a deterrent to whoever in charge or apparently in charge uh, of uh, dealing with protests and all these human rights issues. That definitely will, will help the Hong Kong government uh, response in a way to resort to less draconian uh, means and to become a more kind of reconciliatory uh, mode to, to engage in dialogue with the civil society. So it is a, there's a positive step that U.S. can do. And, and also, it is also in U.S. interest to 
held the Hong Kong government and Chinese government accountable in fulfilling its pledge for maintaining the freedom in Hong Kong and also pursuing the full democracy because it is a kind of agreement, uh, it is enshrined in agreement in the, in the form of basic law and also the Sino-British Joint Declaration. So it is about U.S. want China to be a rule-abiding responsible power in a multilateral system. So making China accountable and honoring its pledge over Hong Kong in all these international agreement and treaty uh, is an important step. So Hofeng, I want to appoint you as a senior advisor to mm. Xi Jinping. Mm. And you're now looking at a status quo where you've got a growing political reform movement in Hong Kong, right, which is asking for universal suffrage. You've got increasing U.S. and global pressure and awareness of what's going on in Hong Kong. You've already seen a impact on Hong Kong's economy, its mm -hmm. tourist market. So the status quo mm -hmm. seems untenable mm -hmm. for your boss. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, your options are mm -hmm. not particularly good. Mm -hmm. If you use force, as you say, you just mm -hmm. talked about fulfilling the collapse of Hong Kong's economy and wiping out a storehouse for elite mm -hmm. Communist Party wealth, mm -hmm. You'll facilitate a global backlash mm -hmm. where you'll have more legislation like the Human Rights and Democracy Act that we've talked about. And any actions you take either on concessions mm. to the protest movement mm. or a backlash mm. or, or using force on the protesters will reverberate in other sensitive areas like Taiwan, for example, mm. which has a presidential election yes. coming up yes. in January 20th of next yes. year. So you're advising Xi Jinping on what, what the next step is to take. Yeah. Uh, what do you say that recognizes these contradictions or these problems? And, and, and um, what is the, the plan you put on the desk uh, of General Secretary Xi? Yeah, I think the, right now, a lot many people will be happy to take on the role of advisors to <laughs> Xi Jinping or being Xi Jinping if himself. It's a very a difficult job. situation. Well, and then the question is, is, is would he listen to the advisors? <laughs> yes, that is that is true. Or kill the messenger or whatever. But yeah. but there's very few um, viable and easy options right now on, regarding Hong Kong. One is this uh, political reform question that they closed down in 2014. And definitely that there's no way... Uh, you can avoid it. Um, in the past five years, they try to avoid it, not talk about it at all. Think, assume that it's dead. Uh, and then uh, you see this kind of big eruption. To prevent further bigger eruption and escalation of the eruption to turning into something more more confrontational or more deadly, then the political reform question needs to be tackled. That uh, How to tackle is in, in the question. Right now, the governing style or the tactics or the rhetorics uh, of the Chinese government and also the Hong Kong government is to push everybody on the other side. You are with the most radical protester or you are totally uh, with us. And there's low middle ground. And many moderate politicians and, and Democrats uh, even find it very difficult and they are being portrayed as enemy, even the moderate one. So how to open the dialogue and then to become an inclusive dialogue and including uh, the younger generation, definitely, they are very important. The future political system of Hong Kong, they will be the, the ultimate stakeholder. They are in their 20s and their 30s. They will be the future of Hong Kong. So it has to in involve them and also involve some of the established political party, opposition party or institution establishment party or opposition party as well. Uh, and so this political reform is very important. And another question that it is lurking under the surface, but uh, it's never nobody able to 
or have the guts to touch it yet is the question of 2047. Because the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the Basic Law all talk about prospect of political reform and the status quo of liberty and things. And can we just clarify that that date, that's the end of the 50-year period, which began in 1997 with the handover of of Hong Kong from the British government. Essentially, it said during that 50-year period. One country, two system. One country, uh, two systems. Supposed to last until 2047. And Deng Xiaoping at that time say, we see what happened after 2047. Maybe we have another 50 years of one country, two system, maybe a lot. And then at that time, many people expect that by 2047, China might be already a democracy. So we don't need to worry about everything, anything. But it looked unlikely now. So this, uh, it is like 20, 30 years down the road at 2047, where the Hong Kong will become another Shanghai and Chongqing become just a metropolitan city in China or become something else or continuing the one country, two system. It is up in the air. Uh, it needs to be discussed as, as uh, early as possible, and particularly is why the young people are so agitated and so angry and so eager, fearless to, uh, to make their voice heard because they are the generation that when 2047 comes, they will be in the prime time of their career or their life. All the generation of the politicians who, who participate in striking the deal about the one country, two system, they are in their 60s, in their 70s, and their 80s, so they probably won't be no longer around when 2047 comes. So this question needs to be opened up sooner or later. Uh, it is in the mind of many young people. Ho Feng, um, thank you so much for being here today. I think we've really benefited from your insight and uh, we'd love to have you back as we continue with this podcast. Definitely. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 